You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. When Mr. Martin asked me back at the end of last year, I think, to come for five times in January and into February, and I decided I would do a little series really beginning basing what I was going to say on on that uh, word of Jesus where he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you've probably forgotten all this, but I'll just remind you of it to let you know why we're doing what we're going to do tonight. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the first time I was with you, I took the parable of the prodigal son, an illustration, a lovely illustration of someone who was lost and, and then found And the next time I came, I I looked at that gospel invitation to the lost that came from the lips of Jesus again in in Matthew chapter 11, where he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those who are lost, those who are weary, those who are heavy laden need to come to Christ. But how are the lost to be found? How are they to be saved? The next time I came, we looked at the new birth. For the first thing that must must happen to us, if we're ever to be saved, is that God must do the work of the new birth in our hearts. That's not something we can do. When you see the text up on, on a billboard, you must be born again. Don't think that that's something that you can do for yourself. No, that is God's work. Born from above, born of the Spirit. He must give us a new heart. He must change us from the inside out. The new birth, that must happen first. And as he does that, then by grace he enables us to respond to the gospel invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. How do we come to him then? Well, by grace we come through repentance and faith. Many years ago, I was speaking at a young people's weekend, long before I came to Castle Dawson, not to do with any young people around this area at all, so I'm not speaking of anyone around here, and you're not going to know who they were, for I'm not going to tell you. But I was speaking at this Young People's Weekend, and on Saturday morning, I think it was, I gave each of them, these were young people maybe in their teens, in the late school years, or perhaps already started university, I gave them a little piece of paper, and I said to them, imagine someone comes to you and asks the question, how can I become a Christian? What would you say to them? In just a couple of sentences. Just write down on that little piece of paper what you would say to them. I gathered the pieces of paper up and I was very disappointed with what I read. I don't think any of them, maybe with one exception, mentioned the word faith. I don't don't think any of them mentioned the word repentance. How do you become a Christian? You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says that he preached both to Jew and to Gentile repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we become Christians. That's our response, what our response must be to the gospel invitation. God must change our hearts by the new birth. That's his work. We must respond by grace with repentance and faith. Now, the last night I was here, we looked at repentance. 
on the night I wasn't here because of COVID, I intended to look at what we call saving faith. So I want to do that now. And we read from Acts chapter 16 about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And we find our text there. If you want a text where you remember that man came and fell down before Paul and Silas in the prison and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you remember how that came about? Paul and Silas were on their second missionary journey. Timothy had joined them. They had traveled up through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They'd come to a place called Troas. Paul had had his vision of the man from Macedonia, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the next day, they got into a boat and crossed the Aegean Sea and, uh, and arrived in Macedonia and very soon went to one of the main towns of that area, Philippi. And Acts chapter 16 tells us of the conversion of the, the first converts in Philippi, the, the nucleus of the, the church in Philippi, to which Paul later wrote his letter to the Philippians. The first one we read of is the uh, woman called Lydia, a seller of purple. And then we took up the story in chapter 16 and verse 16, where we read of the slave girl who had been uh, under the control of her slave owners, and they had been making money because she was able, in a supernatural way, uh, through the possession by evil spirits, in fact, to foretell the future, to tell fortunes. And Paul cast those evil spirits out of her, and so she could no longer tell fortunes. So her owners had lost their source of income, and they then stirred up trouble for Paul and Silas, and eventually had them thrown in prison after a severe beating. The jailer was given the charge of keeping them safely. But in the middle of the night, God sent an earthquake. The prison doors flew open. The jailer woke up. He immediately thought that the prisoners would all have escaped. He would be held responsible the next morning by the authorities. He was going to kill himself. He wasn't going to wait until the next day and suffer that judgment. And, but Paul shouted out from the darkness of the cell, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. He got a light, he came, he came in, trembling, we're told, and fell before them. And this was his question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and your household. It's that believing, which we sometimes refer to as saving faith, that I want you to think of with me just now. You may remember back at the day of Pentecost when Peter was preaching to a great crowd of people in Jerusalem. Toward the end of his sermon, uh, we're told that the crowd were cut to the heart. They realized their sin. They, they, they were being convicted of their sin. And they asked much the same question of Peter as this man asked of Paul. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We know we've done wrong. We know we're sinners. What can we do? The implication being, what can we do to be saved from our sin? Now, Peter gave a different answer. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't mention faith, at least not in the record that we have in Acts chapter 2. Whereas Paul, when, when the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? He mentioned repentance, or he mentions faith, 
but he doesn't mention repentance, at least not in the record that we have here. But we know, we know from Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 that, that Paul's message was both repentance and faith. It's interesting if you look on from that verse 32 of Acts chapter 16, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. What else did Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer and his family? I'm sure he mentioned sin. I'm sure he mentioned repentance, as well as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Because you see, repentance and faith always go together. They're like two sides of the coin, in a sense. God changes our hearts by the new birth and enables us then to repent and believe. Our shorter catechism asks what God requires of us that we may escape the wrath, his wrath and curse due to us for sin. And the answer is, God requires of us repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Mentions those two things again. Repentance and faith. They always go together. Think with me then of the nature of this thing that I'm calling saving faith. We use faith, by the way, in different ways, don't we, in, in the Christian church. Uh, we sometimes speak of uh, faith or trust in God. For example, that he will answer our prayers. Isn't that right? Uh, you, you believe, you trust that God will hear and answer your prayers. You have faith that he will answer prayer. Or, or sometimes you, you remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. The Christian life is a, a walk of faith. We exercise faith when we pray, we walk by faith. Sometimes we speak of the Christian faith, don't we? As distinct from the Muslim faith or the Hindu faith. Meaning that body of, of of Christian teaching that Christians should believe. But we're not thinking of any of those here tonight. What we're thinking of is what I'm referring to as saving faith. That faith which by grace we exercise when we first come to trust in Jesus, along with repentance, for the two always go together. So what about the nature of this faith and the object of this faith? You remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we're told what, what faith really is. It's, faith is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that, well, basically we don't need faith for things that we can see. The faith concerns things that we can't see. There are many things, of course, in life that we can't see and can't even prove, in a sense. And yet, in a sense, we believe that they exist. I mean, scientists, physicists, for example, they talk about electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, things that were, were never heard of in my day at school or university. No one has ever seen these things. Uh, they believe they can see evidence for them, what they do. They see electric lights, which we're told are shining because electrons are going backwards and forwards and, and creating energy and wires that light up 
the light bulbs. But no one has ever seen the electrons, and yet we believe they're there. You see, there's a sense in which we exercise faith in all sorts of things. The theory of evolution, which many of our children are taught in school, is not a proven theory. It's, it's a, an act of faith by those who believe it. They, they believe that this world is billions of years old and that everything we see has just happened by chance. But it's not proven. It's an act of faith. The atheist's statement, there is no God, is a statement of faith. He can't prove, or she can't prove that there is no God. Nor can I prove, or you, that there is a God. We accept various things by faith, things that we cannot see or definitely prove. I look out on the world. I look out on creation. I look out on its magnificence, on its wonder, on its intricate beauty, and it tells me, it shouts at me, I, I believe, that, that there's a great God who made all things. It just hasn't happened by chance. I can't prove that to anyone, but I accept it by faith. Now, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us of those things. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. It's a, it's a matter of faith. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. I believe that God spoke the word and in six days created the heavens and the earth. I can't prove it. But the evolutionist can't prove what he believes either. And I believe that there's a God. Without faith, the writer to the Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's a matter of faith. I can't show anyone God. I can't prove that he is there. But neither can the atheist say or prove that there is no God. So the Christian faith is and, and concerns things that we cannot see, things that, that are beyond human proof in a sense, but we must accept them by faith. And yet it's a reasonable faith, I believe. It's, it's linked to many reasonable facts. And I, I think it's much more reasonable to look at creation and say there's a creator than to look at the wonder of life and say it's all happened by chance. I think the Christian position is much more reasonable. And of course, when you come to think of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, there is lots of evidence that is recorded for us that these things actually happened. But still, the nature of faith is that it concerns things that we cannot see. But the object of faith, the object of saving faith, is Christ crucified. That's very simple. If we're ever going to be saved and have the hope of eternal life, our hope and trust must be in Christ crucified and him alone. It, it always bothered me when I visited folks and they talked about their beliefs or their faith, and they would say, well, you know, I have a very strong faith, or so-and-so has a very strong faith. Now, with respect to people like that. I'm not really interested in whether their faith is strong or weak. 
But where is their faith anchored? Who are they putting their trust in? And true saving faith is in Christ crucified, the only Savior of sinners. Now let me go on just to say another thing about, faith, about saving faith. There is true faith, I just used that phrase, and there is false faith. Just as there's true repentance and false repentance. We know that in the scriptures we have, for example, people like King Saul in the Old Testament who seemed to repent of his sin, but he didn't really. Or Judas, who went to the chief priests and threw back 30 pieces of silver and said, I've sinned, I've, I've betrayed an innocent man. But it wasn't true repentance. He went out and hanged himself. And just as there is false repentance, so there is also false faith, faith that is not true saving faith. Many non-Christians will protest when, when they're spoken to about the gospel that they have some sort of faith in something or other, but it's not true saving faith. Let me just give you a few examples of what faith, saving faith is not. It's not just belief in God. I suspect all of us here believe in God. You know what the Apostle James said in his letter? You believe in one God? You do well. The devils believe and tremble. That's not saving faith. The world is full of people who believe in God, a God or gods, but they're not saved. Nor is it just belief in Jesus Christ. That is, in his existence. Back in John's Gospel, and in chapter 2, right at the very early part of his ministry, large crowds were following Jesus. And we read these words at the end of John chapter 2. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. They had some sort of faith. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. It wasn't saving faith. They saw Jesus. They listened to him. They looked at his miraculous signs, and they had some sort of belief in him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. It wasn't true saving faith. Nor is it just mental assent to the Scriptures. It's not just saying, well, I believe the Bible. We could believe the Bible from head to cover, from cover to cover, rather, and still not be saved. Having said that, true saving faith does involve belief in certain basic truths, doesn't it? We, we must believe that there's a God, as Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, and that Jesus is the sinless Son of God and the only Savior of sinners, and that we are sinners, and that Christ died in the place of sinners, and he alone can save sinners. These are fundamental truths that we must believe. I'm not saying that you need to understand the doctrine of justification by faith in order to be saved. I'm not saying that you need to understand all about original sin or all about the second coming of Christ. The Bible speaks of all of these things. But there are certain basic things that we need to understand, and even children can understand them. Children can understand that they are sinners. Children can understand that Christ came and died for sinners. Children can feel their sin and admit and acknowledge it 
and look to Christ and be saved. And I'm glad of that. Those of you who have children, rejoice in that. You don't have to wait for them to grow up and to understand everything. But there are certain basic things that are non-negotiable that we all need to understand, at least as far as our mental capacity can help us to understand. Certain basic things that we need if we're to truly believe in Jesus. So, what then is true saving faith? Let me just say a number of things uh, very briefly about it. It is, first of all, it does involve receiving some of these basic facts of the gospel uh, that are revealed to us in the scriptures. Not, not understanding necessarily everything. None of us do that. But you remember in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10, the Apostle John said this, Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. When we read the Scriptures, we have the testimony that God has given about his Son. And we need to believe that testimony. I know, as I've said for example, children will not understand it all. None of us understand it all. But when we read in the Scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God, we've got to believe that. When we read of his virgin birth, we've got to believe that. When we read of his sinless life and his substitutionary death, we've got to believe these things. How much did the dying thief understand before he was converted and went to be with Jesus in paradise? Did you ever wonder that? How much did he understand? Well, he understood he was a sinner because he said, I'm getting what I deserve. He understood that Jesus was not a sinner because he said, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He understood that Jesus was a king and about to enter into his kingdom. He said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He understood that Jesus could save him because he used the word Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He understood those basic things, and he was converted. He trusted Jesus to save him, even as he hung on the cross, even as Jesus hung dying on a cross. He trusted him to save him. That's saving faith. He didn't have a, a wealth of knowledge. He didn't understand the Bible from one end to the other, but he understood those fundamental things. But it's more than just understanding in our mind, of course. Saving faith is a matter of the heart as well as the head, isn't it? It involves casting ourselves upon Christ, upon Christ crucified alone, and resting upon him alone for our salvation, placing all our confidence in him. In the Bible, there are other phrases that, that are used to, to, to help us understand what this faith really is, what, what saving faith is, what it means. I mean, the Bible speaks of of coming to Christ, for example. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. The Bible speaks of receiving Christ, as many as received him. To them gave you the power to become the sons of God. The Bible speaks of looking to Christ, just as the Israelites looked to the brazen serpent and were healed, so those who looked to Christ, lifted up on the cross, can be saved. Fleeing to Christ, flee from the wrath, the wrath to come. Those who have fled to take home, to take hold of the hope offered to us. The Bible uses all of these, all of these pictures of what it means to, to come to Christ 
and to rest upon him and to trust in him. I don't think you can get a better short definition of saving faith than the one that's found in our shorter catechism. I wonder, do you know it? You've got a shorter catechism at home? Let me encourage you to read it, learn it. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. That means God enables us to exercise that faith. Whereby we receive and we rest upon him alone for salvation, as he's offered to us in the gospel. We receive him. We receive the gospel record of Christ. We believe what the Bible says about him. We know that he died for sinners. We know that, that we are among those sinners, and we rest upon him alone. And that's the most important word in that definition. Alone. Not in anything else. Not in anything I have done. Not in anything that the church does for me. We rest upon Christ crucified alone for salvation. Who else could the dying thief rest upon? Who else could he trust on in as he hung on that cross facing death? The only one he could trust in was Christ crucified who hung on a cross beside him. How do the lost come to Christ? How can we be saved? What must I do to be saved? Men and brethren, what shall we do? These questions that you find in the scriptures. How are we brought from death to life? How are we brought from the family of Satan into the family of God and given the hope of heaven? Well, we need the new birth. God must change our hearts. We must repent. Unless we repent, we perish, Jesus said. And we must truly believe in him. You know John 3.16, don't you? God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him shall have eternal life. You know what I left out there, don't you? God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If we don't believe in him truly, we perish. If we don't repent, we perish. That's the message of the Bible. That's how important these things are. So we have to be sure that we have truly come to rest upon Christ, to repent of our sin and rest upon Christ and trust in him and him alone for our salvation. I used to try to help folks who were coming into membership of the church to to think these things through and look carefully at their own hearts. And, and I did it by asking three simple questions. Look at your heart carefully. Ask yourself this. Am I truly repentant? And I tried to explain what repentance was as, as I tried to do the last night I was here with you. A knowledge of our sin and a, a true hatred of sin and turning from it and crying to God for mercy. Are you truly repentant? Are you truly trusting in Christ crucified and him alone? Not anything else, not anyone else, not anything you have done. And a, a further question from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Have you been changed? Are you a new creature in Christ? Because if, if God has done that work of the new birth in our hearts, and if we have truly repented and are continuing to repent, and if we are truly trusting in Christ, then we will be new creatures in Christ. We will be changed. 
So he asked those three simple questions. Are you repentant? Are you trusting in Christ crucified alone? Have you been changed? Seems to me that that is the heart of Christianity. And part of it is saving faith. Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Again, when I was visiting folks when I was down in Castle Dawson and Curran, uh, people perhaps connected with the church but maybe didn't make a clear profession of faith, or even if they did profess to know Christ, sometimes I would say to them to try and help them to think this through and to be sure. I would say to them something like this. When a true Christian comes to the end of his or her life, you ask that person, what is your hope of heaven? What should the answer be? If I were to ask you that question, what answer would you give me? Well, I supplied the answer. I said it should be something like this. Not necessarily word for word, but it should be something like this. My only hope of heaven is Christ who died for me. Not Jesus plus anything else. Not anything I have done or ever could do. Not the, the good things I've done in life. Not what I've done in the church. You could stand in a pulpit and be lost. You could be an elder and be lost. You can teach Sunday school for years and still be lost. Our hope and trust must be in Christ crucified and him alone. Let's be sure of that, men and women. John Newton once said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior, and our hope must be in him. Our faith must be in him and him alone. Let's pray together.